Luke chapter 7, Luke chapter 7, and you'll find the, the notes in the bulletin as we return to our study of Luke's gospel. And this morning, we'll be looking at the compassionate Lord of life, a truly wonderful passage in Luke's account of the life and ministry of Jesus. Now, if you'll remember when we started our study, we looked at the very beginning that Luke helpfully tells us why he has written this gospel. And in the first few verses of chapter one, he he's, says this, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me. Also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. Luke is writing to give us certainty. The things we see in Luke's gospel, we, we are, his goal is that we would be convinced of them. But he also tells us it's an orderly account. And part of, part of our passage this morning, Luke 7, 11 through 17, determines very much its meaning by its place in the orderly account. If you remember, we, we studied through Jesus' Sermon on the Plain, starting in chapter 6, the first at-length teaching of Jesus, because Jesus is first and foremost identified himself and identified by Luke as a teacher, as a preacher, and he's in the synagogues on the Sabbath, and he's teaching here and there and everywhere. In fact, his own self-designation in chapter 4 is the one of whom Isaiah 61, 1 and 2 spoke, saying, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You notice that triple emphasis on proclaim. Jesus' own self-identification is first and foremost as one anointed by the Lord to proclaim a message. And then he teaches his disciples what it means to be his disciples. And immediately afterwards, and Luke makes that connection, if you look at the beginning of chapter 7, verse 1, after he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant. And so Luke connects the account of the centurion with the closing of the Sermon on the Plain. And last week we saw how part of the intention of that, of Luke's orderly account, is to demonstrate how in many ways the centurion himself was doing the things that Jesus had commanded in the Sermon on the Plain. He, after all, was humble not rich towards God, but poor. He didn't view himself as worthy to even meet Jesus. And somehow this man had overcome what would be naturally his enemies, the Jews, such that the Jews were speaking well of him, a Gentile, and not just a Gentile, a Gentile officer of the pagan government that had them under its thumb. And somehow this man, through kindness and good deeds, had won over those Jewish leaders. And moreover, he was generous, and he had given to those who could never give back. He had paid for the founding of their synagogue, and he loved the people of Israel. Yes, in many ways, the centurion, with his great faith and his high view of Christ and his low view of self, was the epitome of the ethic and the standard that Jesus was calling for in the Sermon on the Plain. 
Luke links our next passage as well in this account, and I think it also has some linking back as well to the Sermon on the Plain. So let's begin by reading our text this morning, Luke 17, verses 7, sorry, verses 11 to 17. Luke chapter 7, verses 11 to 17. Soon afterwards, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier. And the bearers stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. The dead men sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Now, this second miracle after the giving of his sermon on the plain has a lot of contrast with the one that came before it and a lot of similarities. Both in this miracle and in the previous one, the centurion's servant, the, the attention is drawn, the camera is focusing in not on the one whom Jesus heals, but on the, the family member or the close friend or the person who cares about them. The, the interactions between Jesus and the centurion, even though the centurion himself never actually meets Jesus, we're looking at his faith and his delegations. Sure, Jesus does indeed heal his servant, but we're, we're interacting with this centurion and this man's faith. Likewise here, the emphasis, at least from Jesus' point of view, is on this woman. This miracle is done for this woman. You can't miss the emphasis on the widow. As much as Jesus raises her son, I believe he does it for his mother. As he drew near to the gate, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. She was a widow. A great crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. You see the emphasis? So in both, there's some similarities. In both of these, Jesus is going to perform a miracle, but the person he's interacting with, the person he's dealing with, is not the person he's healing. Yet on the other side, there's this, this contrast. We've seen up until this point in Luke's gospel, many people pleading and appealing with Jesus to heal. We even had the example of the great faith of the friends of the paralytic who would not let a roof stand between them and Jesus. And they dug a hole through the roof and they lowered him down. And at the end of chapter 4, we saw that when the Sabbath closed and the sun set, people from all the areas were bringing their people to him to be healed by him. We saw the leper cry out. And yet here we have a miracle where no one requests Jesus to do anything. In the previous miracle, the, the great faith of the centurion preceded the miracle. Here, no mention of faith precedes the miracle. It's the miracle that creates the report. It's the miracle that creates the testimony and the praise to God. And also, there's some similarity in that these two miracles very, very eerily, eerily is the wrong word, very 
soundly echo the miracles Jesus already referenced of the healing of Naaman the leper and the raising of the widow's son. In fact, we'll see here that Luke actually makes a very direct link to that account in 1 Kings. And what we see when we look at all this and what we see when we, when we, we place this in this context is the great compassionate love of the sovereign Lord of life. Jesus is a great Savior. He is, he is a wonderful Savior. And Luke has previously stressed his authority. Luke has stressed his power, his power to forgive sin, his authority to forgive sin. He is Lord. People fall at his feet and call him Lord. And yet here, we're going to see his kindness, his love, and how it just overflows out of his heart. This is, this is just Jesus walking along, encountering somebody, and, and we see what happens in his heart, and we see what he does, and it is wonderful, and it should lead us to worship. We're going to look at this in three points. Let's begin. Point number one, we're going to see Jesus' great compassion. Jesus' great compassion. And Luke first gives us the context. He gives us the time, and he gives us the location, and he gives us the audience. Now, the time is sometimes shortly afterwards. This is a loose connection. It's, it is clearly in sequence, but as opposed to 7-1, when as soon as he began the sermon, finished the sermon, he went to Capernaum, some amount of time passed, can't be more than a day or two at most. He went down towards a town called Nain. Now, we know virtually nothing about this town from the Bible. This is the only place in the Bible that it is recorded. Um, Archaeologists think they've discovered where its location is. What we need to know is simply that it's within a journey of Capernaum, which was Jesus' sort of hub of activity. And Jesus, for whatever reason, was heading down to this town called Nain. Notice also he tells us who came with him. He has, he has his entourage that he had back in chapter 6. He had his disciples and a great crowd. This is the same group that we heard before he began the Sermon on the Plain was with him. In 6.17, he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people. It's another one of the links that gets us back to the Sermon on the Plain. That same group, they're traveling with him. He's going to Nain, they're going to Nain. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out. So this is, this is an interesting thing. Jesus has this large group of people with him. He's got his disciples. We talked about how they're a mixed group, some genuine believers, some people on their way in, some on their way out. But they're people who would in some sense identify themselves as his student, him as their teacher. And then you've got the curious crowds. They like seeing miracles. They're, what's going on? This is, this is exciting. This is interesting. Here's Jesus coming to this town. And, and, and amazingly, in God's providence, there's another individual leading a large group of people coming out. And these two big masses of people, each with a figurehead at their front, run into each other. It's, it's, it's remarkable. And in God's sovereignty and in God's providence, this, this meeting takes place. As he drew near to the gates of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out. The only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. Okay, so here's now the event. Jesus encounters a funeral procession. So here is the Lord of life with his disciples and following behind them a large crowd of people. And what they see as they draw near to the gates of this town is a plank with a dead person on it. It's not a coffin, even though the text says a coffin a little later because he sits up and starts talking and you don't do that in coffins. Fair enough? This is just a board. In the Middle East, they, the Jews didn't embalm. 
Um, they would do a, when someone died, they would do a, a, a washing, and then they would very quickly bury them. Because, as you know from John 11, when they buried Lazarus, within three days you could smell the corruption. This is the hot Middle East. So they didn't wait around for days. Very likely, this boy had died that day. So Jesus takes a journey. It is even possible, I heard one, one commentator suggest, that he was alive when Jesus set out for Nain. If, if, if the current archaeology is correct, it's about 20 miles away. It would have been the better part of a day's journey. And they would not have wasted time burying him. And so here comes this board with some bearers with a dead young man on it. And then behind that, we have his mother. As he drew near to the gate, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And what we see is a very, very lamentable situation. Um, it, it is interesting that our language has a word for a husband who's, who's had a wife who died, a widower, and we have a word for a woman whose husband has died, a widow, and we have a word for children whose parents have died, orphans. We have no word for a parent who has outlived a child. Because it's unnatural. It doesn't happen with great frequency. And when it does, it is a terrible thing. And you compound upon that. Not only this woman has lost her child, she's lost her only child. And she's lost her only male child. And this all after having lost her husband. What that means is there is now, from her perspective, zero hope of perpetuating the family name and the line. It ends with her. It ends with this dead young boy. At some point in the past, her husband died in some respects, unless she was wealthy, unless she had independent resources, putting her on the mercy of the community. You can read in the law the laws for how the widows and the poor could glean and collect. You can read the book of Ruth and see that. And now, this only child, her only son, young man, died. You can imagine the heartache and the sorrow, so much so that the entire town or a large, a large crowd from the town is identified with her and come with her. And so here's the picture. There's this board being carried by some sort of pallbearers because they're going to bury him outside of the town. They're going to dig a hole and, and bury him. And there's the widow, the grieving mother, and behind and with her, this large crowd. So Jesus at the head of his group with his large crowd and this, this dead body on a board and the mother and then the crowd meet each other as they're approaching the gates. That is the occasion. That's the situation. And one of the things we get from this, by the way, with this emphasis on the double large crowd, is that this miracle is well attested to. One of the things that Luke is... is inferentially saying to Theophilus, because when Luke wrote this, many of these people would still be alive. This is a historically verifiable miracle. This is not a miracle that took place in a corner. This is a miracle that took place in front of potentially thousands. And so now, here's Jesus walking into the town, and the attention of the text now is on the response this had to him. Now, I do not believe Jesus planned this. I don't believe that Jesus knew this was going to happen. Luke's entire telling of it highlights the opposite. We get that word, behold, as he drew near to the town, behold, which is to say almost surprise, or look at that. And after describing what's happening, the camera then turns to our Lord, verse 13, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion, which is to say prior to seeing her, 
She wasn't in his mind. He wasn't feeling compassion for her. It was the sight of her. It was the sight of this pitiable, terrible event that welled up within our Lord's heart, this compassion. But we got to pause and comment on something first. Notice, by the way, in verse 14, 13, what Luke calls Jesus. It's very significant. Up until now in Luke's gospel, he has always referred to Jesus as Jesus or the child or the boy. Now for the first time in seven chapters, Luke addresses him simply as the Lord. Now make no mistake, Luke has drawn to our attention others who have called Jesus Lord. But now the narrator simply starts identifying him as that. And I can think of at least two reasons. One, Luke may feel that by this point, He has made his case well enough for the lordship of Christ that he can now begin adopting that moniker himself. After all, in Luke 2.11, the angels say, For unto you in the city of David is born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And then John the Baptist, what are you doing? I'm here to prepare the way of the Lord. In Luke 5.8, Peter falls down at his feet saying, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. The leper, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Jesus himself Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? And Luke 7, 6, last week, the centurion, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy. Presumably, Luke thinks he's made his case thus far that he can now begin to call him Lord himself. This is the first time the shift is significant. The other reason, I think, is because what Jesus is about to do and the authority he is about to display demands from Luke not simply calling him Jesus, but Lord. We're going to see lordship and authority and power at work. So Luke calls him here the Lord. When the Lord saw her, he felt compassion on her. And this is a word that speaks of the sort of the twisting up in your stomach and the bowels, that, that feeling of anguish, powerful emotion, compassion, And notice, this is simply who our Savior is. He's walking along, he's going to Nain. We don't know why he's going to Nain. And he encounters this funeral procession. And what does our Lord feel? He feels compassion. Now, there's there's another juxtaposition here, too, because what type of Lord is this? See, Jesus says in Matthew, the lords of the Gentiles like to lord it over people. That's even when we get the word lording it over. They like to be made much of. And here is a Lord whose heart breaks, who feels strong compassion over the pitiable plight of a Jewish widow whose son just died. What a wonderful Lord. Not only that, and here's your blank, he felt compassion for her. This echoes the very heart of God, does it not? Listen to Exodus 22, 21 to 24. This, one of the reasons why I think it's valuable to get in those Bible reading plans or read your whole Bible is you start to see some of the bigger themes come up and you cannot read through your Old Testament without seeing again and again and again and again and again God's compassionate heart for the widow, for the orphan, for the alien and the sojourner. Just one or two brief examples. Exodus 22, 21 to 24. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives will become widows. That's that's how God feels strongly, protectively. But the widow, the orphan, 
the sojourner. Or, or Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 17 to 18. For the Lord your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who is not partial, who takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. And it's not in many ways that the book of Ruth itself a demonstration of God's compassion, God's love, God's mercy for the widow, Naomi. God cares about marginalized people. God cares about people who are not clothed in strength but in weakness. And this poor woman who first lost her husband and now her only child, Jesus feels compassion for. This is an occasional miracle. This is just showing us who our Savior is and what He does, His heart. He doesn't just feel compassion, though. He moves on to words. He, as, as the Scriptures tell us, not to love simply in, in, in word only, but in deeds. So Jesus will move to words and then deeds. And look what He does. He does something remarkable. He does something remarkable. He speaks comfort to her. He speaks comfort to her. But, but I want you to stop and think how audacious and bold Jesus is. Think of the last time you went to a funeral. I want you to imagine walking up to the grieving wife, husband, sibling, child, close friend, and saying, stop crying. Don't cry. That That would, for you or for me, if it isn't very quickly followed up by some very eloquent and very clever words, get to be the most tactless, rude, and frankly, stupid thing you could say. Funerals are a place to express grief and sorrow. Jesus himself wept at Lazarus' tomb. So who is this man who sees this grieving widow, this woman who has every reason to be heartbroken, who has every reason to be pouring out her grief and her lament? And how does he dare say to her, do not weep? Well, we're about to see why. Because he can back that encouragement up with actions. He can give her a reason to stop crying. But just notice the movement. Jesus' heart goes out towards her in compassion. He speaks to her, telling her comfort. And again, this this even goes back to the Sermon on the Plain. Remember, part of Jesus' ethic he said to them was in Luke 6, 36, be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Here we see the mercy and the compassion of Jesus evidencing the Father's heart, and he speaks comfort to her. No one's asking. No one's making a request. It's just who he is. It's just what he does, naturally flowing out of the overflow of his heart, just as we heard that the good man from the good treasure in his heart produces good. Here we see what's in Jesus' heart because we see the words that come out of his mouth. We see the deeds that happen, unrequested, spontaneous. What a marvelous Savior. We see Jesus' great compassion. Next, in this mighty miracle, we're going to see Jesus' sovereign authority. Jesus' sovereign authority. Now, if, you, if the first piece of speaking to the, to the grieving mother and widow wasn't bold enough, he then brings the entire funeral procession to a halt. Again, this is bold. This is audacious. If you can't back up with what he's about to do, for any of us to try to do this would be... Terrible mistake. And he does it remarkably. He, he approaches 
the plank, the bear that the, the boy is on. And then he does something that to any Jewish person would be a big mistake. He touches it. You've got to understand, under Levitical law, you touch a dead body, you're unclean. You touch a thing a dead body has touched, you're unclean. If there's a jar in a house that's open, when the person dies, it's unclean. You can read it all in Numbers 19, 11, and 16. Whoever touches a human bone or a grave shall be unclean seven days. We've already seen, haven't we, when Jesus touched the leper, that here is one who, who makes holy. Normally, it all flows the other way. Uncleanness contaminates, it spreads. But here is one who his touch reverses it. His word reverses it. So he walks up and he touches it, and somehow the entire procession comes to a halt. This is, this is a dramatic sequence. He first tells the grieving mother and widow, don't, don't cry. Then he audaciously touches the plank. The whole thing comes to a halt. I mean, there's two big, there's a crowd behind Jesus that's now stopped. There's a crowd behind this woman that has stopped. What will happen next? And what happens next is that Jesus speaks life to the dead man. Jesus speaks life to the dead man. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. Now here the wording is important to notice. Jesus not only says arise, but he says, I say arise. And the point of that is to make it clear. Jesus is taking the nexus of the authority and making it his own. And we're going to see in a, in a few minutes that that contrasts sharply with the account of Elijah raising the widow's son. Jesus makes it clear that his command is rooted in his own authority. The Greek's even more emphatic. I myself, literally is how you could translate it, say, arise. This is bold. <laughs> Again, either this is a lunatic or a madman. Or this is the living God. You don't just simply walk up to dead people and tell them what to do unless you're the living God or unless you're one of his authorized agents. Jesus, who previously rebuked a fever, and it obeyed. Jesus, who in the next chapter will rebuke the winds and the storm. Jesus, who healed the centurion's servant at the very edge of death. That's what Luke says. He was right at the edge. Now takes it a step further. Here is someone who's dead. And rooting the command in his own authority, he speaks life. Now, what authority is this? We've already seen in Luke 5, 24, Jesus has the authority to forgive sins on earth. But here we're going to learn, Jesus has the authority to grant life. In John 5, 21, Jesus says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Now, I think this is one of the critical points for understanding why Luke gives this account. If you turn back to chapter 6 of Luke, if you remember as we went through the Sermon on the Plain, Jesus has some very, very difficult and challenging commands for us there, doesn't he? About loving our enemies, about turning the other cheek, about lending and not expecting to get back. But Jesus doesn't just start out giving these hard commands. He starts out with a series of beatitudes, of blessings and curse, of antitheses, of reversals. And when we notice that all of those promises and all of that encouragement he gives hinges on a future 
repayment, a future reward. So look at, look at verse 20 in chapter 6. He lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, you will or shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil. On account of the Son of Man, rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. So Jesus, before he gives his really hard commands, gives these, these promises of encouragement that if things are bad now, sometime in the future they'll be better. There, there will become a repayment in the future, which of course then begs the question, how Able is Jesus to follow through with his promises, right? I mean, if I'm sitting here and I'm listening to somebody tell me, hey, somebody slaps you on the cheek, turn the other one. Somebody steals your outer garment, don't withhold your inner garment. Somebody wants to strike you or misuse you, don't resist them. Give. Love your enemies. Those are some hard things. And and Jesus roots that in this future reward. So I want to know how able is this man to follow through with what he's promised, right? Fair enough. If I ask you to come over and do something really difficult and help me for a couple of days working and I promise to pay you in two weeks, part of what you want to know is, am I able to actually follow through and do that? In two weeks, will you get paid? Well, the third beatitude is what? Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Jesus encounters a woman. He tells her, stop weeping. And then he gives her a reason to stop weeping, doesn't he? Can Jesus follow through? Can Jesus deliver on his promises of repayment, blessing, and reward? You bet he can. How do we know he can? Because he can raise the dead. Because he can take a funeral procession of the most pitiable and sorrowful person, and he can flip it upside down to what must be It is, Luke says, a rejoicing. He can turn weeping into laughter. He can turn tears into joy. He can speak life into death. You better believe Jesus is able to deliver. That Jesus can make such bold promises as the kingdom of heaven will be yours. Or that your reward will be great in heaven. We learn here, we see very visibly that it is true what he said, that those who weep now will laugh. And Jesus' word commands and gives life. Jesus' word commands and gives life. That's just remarkable again. Absolutely remarkable. How authoritative and powerful is this word? Notice Jesus didn't work a spell Jesus didn't, as uh, Naaman, the Assyrian, imagined Elijah would do, raise his hand over the place. Jesus didn't grit his teeth up and, and concentrate really hard. He didn't do what Elijah did, we'll see in a minute, throwing himself, his body, over the dead body three times. Jesus speaks. He speaks three words in Greek. And they have the power to grant and give life fully. This guy doesn't slowly, groggily start to sort of cough. He sits up and is immediately talking. This is a total and full resuscitation. This is immediate. Notice also that there is no faith on the part of the young man, right? 
No faith even mentioned. Jesus' miracles are always this way. They're instantaneous. They're full. This is complete power, authority, and lordship. And Jesus roots it in himself, and his word commands and gives life. And then we get this amazing and wonderful statement. Jesus gave him to his mother. Because this is what it was about. Jesus' compassion was for her. This miracle was for her. He gave him to his mother. Now here, I'm going to ask you to turn to 1 Kings 17. Please turn to 1 Kings 17. And the reason is that while I've been hearing the echo of the Elijah and Elisha stories, here Luke makes a clear textual connection. It's not as clear in the ESV. But there's a Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, and that phrase, he gave him to his mother, is identical word for word with the Greek translation of 1 Kings 17.23. And it's clear that Luke wants us to hear and compare and recognize the similarity of what came before in Israel's history and what is happening now. So let's just briefly read the account of Elijah and the widow's son. 1 Kings 17.17. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity upon even the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him or gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God. The word of the Lord is in your your mouth is truth. So Jesus performs a remarkable miracle that Luke points us back to this. Now remember, Elijah and Elisha have been echoing through Luke ever since chapter 4. And they will continue to echo all the way through until chapter 9 when Elijah himself makes a personal appearance. You know that, right? In, in Luke 9.30, when Jesus goes up on the mountain, who does he meet with? Moses and Elijah. And, and ever since Jesus first referenced them back in chapter 4, remember, he, he reads Isaiah 61. He identifies himself as its fulfillment. The people are all waiting, and, there's, and they're, they're listening intently to his gracious words. And then he turns on them and says, Doubtless you'll say to me, Physician, heal thyself. Do the miracles that we heard you did in Capernaum. And then he reminds them, There are many widows in Israel, and God only sent one prophet to one, and she wasn't an Israelite. And there are many lepers in Israel in those days. And God only sent one to a prophet, and he was a Syrian general. 
And the people get angry because Jesus is telling them that they have, they have no right to demand things of God, that God does his miracles. He, he sends his prophets where he will. And if he wants to send his prophets to Gentiles, he'll send them to Gentiles. And he wants to heal you know, Phoenician widows, he'll, he'll raise their sons. And then immediately after the sermon on the plain, we see two miracles that echo those two accounts that Jesus gave. First, we see him heal the servant of a foreign military leader, and he does it from a distance, and he does it without coming face to face with them, just as it happened with Naaman the Assyrian. And then we see him raise the son of a widow, just as Elijah did. What, what, what is Luke's point in drawing this to our attention? First, Jesus turns her weeping into laughter. We already talked about that, how this is the, the warrant, the ground, the proof that all of the promises he made in his sermon will come true, that he has the authority and the power to keep his word, to keep his promises. You can bank on them, and that can become the ground for you to live a radical life of loving your enemies, turning the other cheek, because you know you will be raised from the dead. You know that your reward is great in heaven. You know that yours is the kingdom of God, so what can man do to me? Jesus can deliver. Jesus can follow through. Jesus can turn her weeping to laughter. Second, Jesus is greater, far greater than Elijah. You notice when Elijah spoke to raise the boy, he speaks to the Lord. Oh, Lord, grant this child, this boy, life. And Elijah has to exert energy and, 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 and work at this. He has to spread himself over the child three times. Who does Jesus pray to? No one. Not here. Who does Jesus make a request of? No one. Elijah had to ask the Lord to grant the boy life. Jesus is the Lord, and so he speaks life to the boy. And he makes it emphatic. I myself say. He's no mistake here. On my authority and on who I am, arise. Jesus is far, far greater than Elijah. No work, no energy, no sweat. This is, after all, the one who spoke creation into existence, and this is the one who, after all, will speak, and the dead will hear, and they will all be raised to the resurrection of the just and the resurrection of the unjust. What's one resurrection? It's no sweat. This is the one who will speak, and all the dead will hear and rise. He is greater, far, far greater than Elijah. And Elijah will show up and do him homage in chapter 9. And Jesus' ministry is greater than Elijah's. You know, we, we read the Bible, and you may get the impression that miracles are always happening in the biblical times. They, they really weren't. The, the groups of miracles really only group around three points in the Bible. Moses and his ministry, there's, there's a bunch of some miracles that take place there, especially in the Exodus from Egypt. So Moses superintended a small grouping of miracles. But really after that, the next grouping of miracles you get is around the ministry of Elijah and Elisha. And really beyond that, it's Jesus and the apostles. And there's the odd miracle here or there throughout Scripture, but really they're, they're not as common as you think they are. And so Elijah and Elisha and their ministry as prophets... Is, is marked by these signs and miracles. And what we've seen in Jesus' gospel with the unprecedented miracles that he can perform, here's the one who touches lepers, and he doesn't become unclean. They become clean. Here's someone who touches you know, dead men. He, he, they become alive. 
his ministry and its scope and what he is here to do and achieve is greater than Elijah's because Jesus has sovereign authority because he is the Lord of life. Elijah prayed to the Lord Jesus is the Lord. And he raised this boy and he gave her back, gave him back to his mother. Third, and quickly, let's look at the crowd's fearful response. The crowd's fearful response. Fear seized them all and they glorified God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us. God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. You see two things. They are gripped with fear and glorify God. Gripped with it. I mean, who wouldn't be? This is absolutely stunning. You're walking along. Here comes a funeral procession. Here comes this, this, this Jewish carpenter, this, this rabbi. He walks up and he boldly says something to the, to the widow, the mother. He puts the funeral to a halt. He halts it. He touches the plank that the young man is on. And then he speaks to the dead man. And the dead man sits up and begins talking. Absolutely phenomenal. And, and fear, holy fear, the fear of the Lord seized them and they glorified God. Notice, by the way, that a holy sense of fear before God is not incompatible with joy and rejoicing. We, we sometimes think the only way we can rejoice is if we feel free and happy and comfortable. But there's a, there's a, a fear of the Lord that fits very nicely, according to Psalm 2, rejoice with trembling. People are gripped with fear, and they glorify God. And they say two things, and this is key. Two things. A great prophet has arisen among us. Notice the play on words there, by the way. Same, same play on words in English as it is in Greek. What does Jesus say to the young man? Arise. And in the act of raising this dead young man, Jesus is raised up among the people as a great prophet. Turn back to, to Deuteronomy 18, because this is, this is an important theme that Luke is, is going to develop and bring to a head by chapter 9. And he's introducing it here. While you're turning there, there are many messianic threads in the Old Testament, many, many texts that are telling Israel to anticipate somebody. And for some of the Jews, it wasn't entirely clear they were all one person. If you remember in John chapter 1, when the Pharisees sent their inquisition to ask questions of John the Baptist and they want to know who he is, they ask him, are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? They say. What do they mean? The prophet. They mean Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 18, 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see his great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they have spoken rightly. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth. He shall speak to them all that I command, and whoever will not listen to all my words, he shall speak to them. I myself will require it of, of him. So there is a great Jewish expectation of a coming prophet. Deuteronomy closes by saying, to this day, there has not arisen a prophet like Moses, which is to say that promise in chapter 18 has not been fulfilled yet. And so 
A prophet's getting raised up, and what are you to do when the prophet is raised up? You're to listen, right? Go, go to Luke 9. Go to Luke 9. When Jesus ascends the mount, and when he is witnessed to by the law and the prophets, when Moses and Elijah are there, and God gives public testimony, what does he say in Luke 9.20? No, not, sorry, not Luke 9.20. In Luke 9.35. A voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. I'll raise up a prophet from among your midst. It is to him you shall listen. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. One of the things Luke is showing us by the time we get to here, by the time Elijah and Moses show up to encourage Jesus, is that Jesus is indeed the great prophet predicted in Deuteronomy 18. And here... Here the, the crowds begin to ascribe. I don't know if they get it because they aren't calling him the prophet. They're saying simply a great prophet has arisen. But Luke knows where he's going with this. Luke knows what's going to be said in chapter 9. And so for the reader, we're beginning to see, he's beginning to make the case that Jesus is indeed the predicted great prophet of Deuteronomy 18. In raising the young man to life. Jesus has raised himself in the sight of the people as a great prophet. The second thing they say, God has visited his people. God has visited his people, which is a reference to Exodus 4. When Moses encounters God at the burning bush because God has heard his people's cry and he has felt compassion for them, when that happens, he goes to the people. And we read this in Exodus 4.31. The people believed... And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. So God feels compassion for his people and God sends a deliverer who will deliver them from bondage and slavery in Egypt. And the introduction of that great salvation and saving act is referred to by the people as God has visited his people. I think these people spoke better than they knew, however. In the case of Moses and the Exodus, God raised up a prophet, God raised up a deliverer. How could they know in what greater sense God truly in the person of Jesus had visited his people? You know, Jesus here feels great compassion and he raises a, a widow's only son. But Jesus was only there because he, God's only son, had come to die. The widow's only son could live because God's only son would die. God feels great compassion for his people. God had visited his people. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. God loved the world in this very way that he sent his only son. How, how, how great compassion and sympathy does God feel for this woman? In many respects, he gives up and he experiences the loss of his only son. God truly, these people spoke far better than they knew. God has visited his people in the person of his son. And this widow's son lived only because God's only son would die. 
Paul says in Romans 8.31, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The people understand some of it, but we, the reader, we, Luke's audience, I think, understand a fuller account of what they're saying. They speak better than they know. Oh, yes, God has risen a great prophet from among them. And oh, yes, God has visited his people. They don't even know the half of it, but we do. Then the report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. And that's what's going to set up the next event in the text. Pastor Daniel in two weeks will enter in as, as we see the disciples of John the Baptist heard the report. That's the movement. This is a, such a remarkable miracle. It spreads everywhere. And John the Baptist, who's been arrested, his disciples hear the report, and that sets up the next movement in the text. But just for the moment, let's just stop and pause and worship at a Savior who feels such compassion, at a Father who feels such love that he would give up his only son. What does Jesus do naturally? What does Jesus do when people aren't bothering him and pestering him and and asking? This is what he does. He feels compassion. He feels love. He speaks life. We have a great and compassionate Savior, and he is the very Lord of life. Let's pray. Lord God, help us to see the glory of your Son. Lord, help us, give us eyes to see that we might love Jesus more than we ever have. Lord, you are a God slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and mercy, and your Son shares your heart. Lord, you looked on us in our weakness, not because of any greatness in us. We were the least of all peoples, but why did you love us? Because you loved us, because it is your nature to love, and because it is your Son's nature to feel compassion. You came down here, The Lord Jesus left his throne above and he came down and he took on flesh and he suffered among us and he died for us because he's a savior and a compassionate God. And Lord, we we are the beneficiaries of all that grace. So Lord, let us marvel at it. Let us be encouraged by it, knowing that that same heart expressed to this widow is your heart towards each and every one of us. And you have shown that same love and even more in sending Jesus to die for us. Lord God, let us delight in that and revel in that. Let us be transformed by that knowledge. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and give you peace. You are dismissed.